welcome to Dark Hammer, a Darker Days Radio podcast dedicated to the worlds of Warhammer. I am one of your regular hosts, Chris. I am joined, as always, by David. Good afternoon, evening, good morning, whenever you listen to us. Hello, everyone. And we're joined again by Mike. Hey, what's up? I'm back, ready to talk about some vampires. Yes, that is the topic for Dark Hammer uh, for this episode. We are talking about the children of Nagash. We're talking about vampires. Because vampires are a interesting, um, and uh, I think they've got their own distinct flavour in Warhammer. Uh, they're very baked into the uh, old world, or the world that was. Um, yeah. We're not going to talk about vampires in um, the mortal realms, because uh, there isn't actually that much to talk about yet. I think they're still finding their, finding what vampires are in that setting. Um and uh, there just isn't as much material at this moment that uh, we can delve into. Uh, but before then, um, well, that's the topic of discussion. So before then, we're going to talk about a little bit about what interesting Games Workshop news is coming up. So the big thing is... Roll. Yeah. Um. Is, is 40k 9th edition. So they're bringing out a ninth edition of the game it's not going to be hugely dissimilar to the previous edition so you know codices are still usable uh between uh editions obviously there will be ultimately updates of those books but you know i think we're getting into this realm of where an edition flows into another edition much like how age of sigma float from its first into second we're going to get that with 40k now uh I think the biggest things I'm noticing is changes to they're changing like how blast works. So blast have like some things. Um, vehicles, vehicles and monsters are more frightening because they can shoot weapons in close combat. So if they're engaged by things, so that should be pretty good. Like apparently the best thing you can do if you're engaged with a tank is hope that you've got flamers on your tank because you don't need to roll to hit with them. Um, ah, no. Good. No, blast templates can, as far as I, I think, community put something up a couple of days ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, people, but blast weapons cannot fire. It's not flame templates. That's no, not flame I don't weapons. Think They're so. a different weapon. Right. It says specifically that flamers are good for exactly this role. Okay. It was in the it was in the um, footnotes. Um, uh, obviously, it's cool for big monsters. Um, there's some new rules today about terrain. I think the main thing is from what I'm reading is they're, they're trying to support different game sizes from the type of game that easily fits on a coffee table kind of size. Yeah. So we're talking, you know, just points. just talk well, less than that even. They've even suggested less than that. So yeah. you can do what you want. And they're trying to have this crusade play style where you play a game and you you get XP or, or, or resource points and you buy new troops. So they're really trying to go for this narrative play, which I feel is very much akin to obviously what they did with Kill Team. Uh, definitely kind of like Warcry, where you gain more renown and get more things in there. So uh, it's kind I'm... of in a way a more, it's a, it's a more involved version of the Age of Sigmar Path to Glory, which was designed, yeah. you have a few models, put them on the table, play them, learn some of the rules, buy some more models, it grows and there's a kind of like a cascade campaign. It just seems a bit more thought out than the glory, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in it because I think by playing smaller games, you can collect more interesting, you can collect more diverse collections, which is cool if you're into the uh, role play game. So that's what I'm interested in. Um, 
I haven't played 40k properly in in eons since uh, I guess it would be fifth edition back in 2005. So um, yeah, that's my feelings on it. Mike, do you have strong feelings of ninth edition? Nope, zero feelings at all. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Like I say, I, I'm gonna try and collect things in a sort of like 40k second edition style. So I want a yeah. little road trader force using my Blackstone Fortress stuff. You know, he's going to be knocking around with a squad of Space Marines, maybe some Sister of Battle, you know, eclectic, uh, and kind of do the same with other things. So, like, you know, a small Drakari force would be kind of cool, or I've already got a small Chaos force, thanks to Blackstone Fortress. Uh, I think I've got a small, the start of a small Gene Slow Cult force, because I have Gene Slow Cult for Necromunda. So, yeah, if it lets people get into the games easier by not going oh you must have a 1000 point army because that's all we ever bloody play um then great that's uh what i want to see um one thing which has come out about this which i'm i'm really excited about is the progression in the storyline chaos is bad big bad anymore are they no we're gonna see necrons which which is obviously interesting when you consider the whatever narrative going forward for wrath and glory and mm. uh, taking one hat off and putting another one on, I do not know how any of Ninth Edition influences Wrath and Glory as a writer for Wrath and Glory. I have jackal idea of what's going on. Um, so that's all I'll save on that. Uh, talk about eclectic collections, though. Blackstone Fortress Zote models coming up soon. So that's a new fighter to help your explorers in the Blackstone Fortress. Zotes are a classic creature that date back from First Edition. They were envoys for Tyranids back in the day that's what they used yep. to be now they're being released uh for blackstone fortress so you'll get rules for 40k for them and they have um they can join any faction they like so you can have them in a nid army so you can play them second ed style or you can have them in a chaos force or in an imperial force so that's kind of cool and it's a wicked model so again i think the fun thing is we're seeing a lot more weird aliens in 40k these days we're seeing a lot more different things they are in that universe and kind of especially with the blackstone fortress stuff we're seeing like yeah in there you're seeing um dark mechanica uh, we have the amble so loads of yeah. okay cool um and then uh i've been painting some stuff from mortal realms magazine i've painted up a whole load of graveyard terrain so that's cool um and you know it's it's being a cost-effective way of collecting stuff then uh the other thing turning up is soon for soulbound is cities of flame that'll be coming out with the uh gm screen uh so cities of flame is a collection of 25 story short story scenario um descriptions that take up like literally a page uh and encompass all the free cities in the realm of fire akshai so um you can get a sense of that already with the also newly released free scenario for Soulbound called Crash and Burn, where you're like on board a Caradron uh, um, airship. So uh, I've not yet read that fully, but it looks kind of fun. I'm all game for anything with Caradrons, so I need to read into that one. And then finally, we've. This is not related to 40k or Warhammer or any Warhammer-ish stuff. Uh, 
if you go over to the Storyteller Vault, we've released uh, the second transmission, which is Secret Frequencies 2. So again, it is a collection of five uh, supernatural, mythological, folklore, encounters, creatures, locations uh, for use in Chronicles of Darkness games, uh, which you know I think they can basically be used in any Chronicles of Darkness game. You know, we're talking things, cryptids like the Popelik monster, or strange locations like the forest in Transylvania that's got like a gateway to other realms. Or just uh, your piece, David, which is Japanese ghost and spirit myths. Yep. And uh, Mike, you've covered the blood drinking, uh, the myths of blood drinkers in Ethiopia. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the one thing I'd say, especially with um, uh, David's uh, kind of section and uh, mine as well, is that these could really be applied to any horror game. So um, oh, yeah. you could you could take like the czar spirits that I uh, created and put those into 40k if you really wanted to just have these like really strange warp creatures uh bounding about yeah actually it's funny you say that because i was looking at um what <coughs> what the what descriptions are of vampires within 40k which is uh there Blood are angels. <coughs> no i'm talking about the other weird creatures uh yeah. there are some other weird vampire yeah, creatures are. in 40k which would be really cool to talk about as like weird obscure um uh, apocryphal lore in 40k because it'd be interesting if they ever bring stuff back like that yeah obscure xenos would be a great episode um i remember mm. reading about uh i think the first time i ever saw a vampire in 40k was it was mentioning that like a um uh, an inquisitor had fought one and i was always really curious like so are these like regular vampires or something like that but it seems like they're probably these just very bizarre warp creatures yeah yeah could be they could be warp creatures they could be some kind of uh human um, some kind of mutation so there's there's lots of different mm. that they, they could arise within the 40k universe completely yeah right and with that let's move on to the main segment which is vampires in the old world so uh, the only way we can talk about vampires in the old world is we go all the way back to uh, their origins, which is obviously tied to the Lord of Death, Nagash, uh, who is, let's just say, is just such the, the arch bastard and greatest character in all of Warhammer, in my opinion. Um, I don't know, uh, seem to do quite well. So uh, I'm gonna I'll, I'll briefly go over his background. So okay, so Nagash was born in Kemri, thousands of years before Sigma was even existed in the uh, in the old world in the em in what would be the Empire. He was uh, he was uh, to be a priest king. He was he joined a mortuary cult. He quickly became high priest, uh, and due to being far south from the uh, from the the north, really far from from the poles. Uh, he, he was unable to cast magic. So magic in Kemri involves more ritualistic uh, kind of collecting of, of ambient energy rather than pulling and drawing the winds of magic. But he threw himself into the study of death magic and the search for immortality. And then you have the Dark Elves show up. So what happened was there was a group of Dark Elves. They were captured and sealed away in his father's tomb. Uh, and a dark elf priestess told Nagash she would teach him all she knew about dark magic in order to release her brethren. 
So over the long years of study, he learned how to reap souls and use that energy to cast magic. So he, so basically Nagash understands dark magic, but a very specific form of it where he's pulling in a destructive form the energy of life and thus, the, you know, the energy of death in that respect. And yes, so he discovered a new type of sorcery, which is necromancy. And the Dark Elves obviously, you know, went across the sea back to Nagaroth and were never seen again. So Nagash That's had... That's the story, but nobody really knows. Yeah. So Nag- Nagash has uh, obviously experiments a lot and a lot with death, trying to store the effects, all aging, uh, creating an elixir of life. He built a, a giant great black pyramid as he became a tyrant ruler over all of Kemri, killing his brother, uh, and also, you know, basically becoming a, a pure tyrant, killing people as experiments to learn more and more about death. Uh, under the leadership of King uh, Lamazar in, of the city-state of Lamia, other priest kings began, uh, gathered powerful armies, formed a coalition to try and stop him. Bloody war broke out. Waves of dark energy surged over the Black Pyramid, blasted the lands of Nikara. And after nearly a century of conflict, the armies of the priest kings shattered Nagash's power and sacked the capital city of Kemri. So Nagash then flees north and spent some time building a new centre of power located in the Crippled Peak Mountain, also known as Nagashasar. And it's basically, this is a mountain, it's just filled with warp stone. It had like a warp stone meteorite like crash into it eons ago. And he formed an alliance with Skaven. And yes, as David has put in the note, notes, we know, all, know, we know all too well how that goes. Uh, because history likes repeating itself over and over again. So Nagash, from his new, um, new citadel, uh, sends out his agents, one of whom was a member of his mortuary cult called, uh, I believe it's called Vizoran. Uh, and then uh, he was a high priest of Lamia, who was able to corrupt the mind of the princess Neferata, and who was destined to become queen of Lamia. And Neferata and wasn't basically study the, the dark arts of, of, of necromancy to the point that her mortuary cult and the works of uh, Wazoran uh, leads them to discover an elixir which will allow them to become immortals, but not in the same way as Nagash. So Nagash is effectively a lich. They become the first vampires. And of course, there's a whole deal with how she took over her lands and then it eventually comes out that that Lamia, the lands of Lamia are under the thrall of vampires. And then there's even more war with with uh, the kingdoms of uh, of of Nikara. Uh, or Kemri, or in those areas, uh, and Lamia has obviously raised the ground, and then all the vampires that were born of uh, Neferata and her, uh, you know, sl- sl- or slaves and thralls, bred through the uh, through the old world. So it gets there's some more complications in this story, but that's basically how we get vampires. They study the dark arts of Nagash and learn their own route to becoming immortal. Now, the reason why they... So they feed on blood, because that's obviously a life... You know, carries life essence. The reason they are harmed by sunlight, though, and by holy symbols, such as, like, the symbol of of, uh, Sigmar, is tied to the fact that when Nagash wanted his children, the vampires, to come help him in his war against humans and against Sigmar... 
they didn't. So in his final dying breath, you know, Nash dies a few times. So in that instance, that dying breath, uh, he is said to have cursed all the vampiric children to forever be harmed by, you know, holy symbols, in particular those of Sigma, and by sunlight. And that's where I'm going to stop now. If someone else wants to pick up where we go from, where you want to dive in next with this history of vampires. Just trying to find where where you are at in this. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's kind of at this time. So um, he cursed. So Nagash cursed the vampires, making them uh, unable to bear the rays of the sun and holy stuff. Uh, afterwards, they have no constant pain. So we're about there. Cool. Um, because of this, the vampires then uh, fled uh, Nagashizar um, and Nagash um, because of his great rage. Um, they uh, fled north. Um, so kind of as an idea, Kemri and Lamia and those those uh, regions within the old world kind of uh, lie along the equator, what we would probably consider African regions and Egypt. And so they then fled north away from this. Um, to to get away from the wrath um, and into what is you know became known as the old world um, from this from the the rage of Nagash and the wars that Nagash was ra- uh, um, raging across uh, Kemri, um, there were seven surviving vampire lords um, and they each went their own separate way to try and kind of spread the spread the vampires around so they wouldn't easily be caught in one space. Um, one of them went to the Far East, perhaps to the distant lands of Cathay, um, and we don't know much about who that is or, or what happened there. Another disappeared into howling northern wastes, so the, the chaos wastes close to the North Pole, and again, we don't know really what happened to him. The last four, um, who are kind of the more well-known of the vampire, vampire lords, uh, stayed within the old world themselves. So you have Queen Neferata, um, who took Pelic, who took speak who took residence within a large peak in the the world's edge mountain this peak was known as the silver pinnacle and she still resides there today as leader of the lamian bloodline and we'll come into the bloodlines in a bit um another one was the cursed yet honorable abarash who fled to the northern regions of the old world uh where he is said that he defeated and drank the blood of a mighty dragon um and this helped to remove the curse of blood drinking um, with the curse lifted, he formed the first, the Blood Dragon bloodline, and these became mighty uh, warriors uh, and horseback riders. Uh, Scholary Vassoran uh, flung himself across the old world, gathering as much knowledge as he could um, of necromancy uh, in the hopes of re- resurrecting his fallen masters. Um, and it was during this time he founded the Necrarch bloodline. Um, then there was also one more, uh, Ush. Ushuran, um, who founded the Strigori bloodline after he helped a necromancer establish uh, an ancient human kingdom, Strigos. Um, and this was long before the founding of the Empire of Man. Um, the most dangerous bloodline, uh, the greatest and most famous bloodline um, that actually kind of ever existed and plagued the human race in the old world, um, is one that had yet to be started at this point. Um, but when he grew, his ambition grew so great, he was able, he had the potential to conquer the empire. Um, and we'll come into who they are in a minute. Um, you'll know them as soon as we say them, if you have any knowledge of the old world. Um, so that kind right. of to modern times in a way, excluding um, 
this ultimate line. So yeah. Was... So um, so Mike, we've got an, we've got the impression that obviously the vampire bloodlines and the vampires are situated around the old world. So um, where can we find them uh, if we're playing a game of where are we going to generally find them if we're playing a game of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay? Where can we easily encounter these uh, these horrible blood-drinking entities? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think what we want to cover in the next few sections is kind of like how you use these uh, the, the night societies in your games. Um, not just locations, but also, you know, what their societies are like and how they can be interacted with. So regarding locations... Um, there's there's quite a few places. Uh, I think the main area that everyone kind of thinks about and, and talks about with regard to Warhammer Fantasy is the kind of old province, old area of Sylvania. Um, and this is where uh, numerous vampires have sprung up. Uh, some of them, of course, have like the Von Karstheim bloodline, but other bloodlines do appear here as well. Um, and it's really this kind of blighted land where uh, there's beetles crawling about, um, and uh just got a lot of haunted forests like the uh the hunger woods for example and a lot of peat bogs and the like it's a very unpleasant place but uh because of its sort of depressed nature it was easy for vampires to kind of swoop in there and take over but there's other areas where uh, uh vampires show up in the old world uh, for example there is of course the uh, the red duke of muzion um and that's located in bretonia uh and that's more of the kind of blood dragon uh type of vampires there as uh david alluded to um Ushorin, uh has a history with the uh this old city called uh, uh strigos and the survivors from that are the Strigani, which are um, basically Warhammer fantasies stand in for the Roma people. Um, there's not a lot of details given about them in most of the books, but it seems like they're coded in that way, uh, similar to Roma, where they travel around in caravans and don't have any set uh, home. So that's a kind of a mobile way in which uh, player characters might encounter some uh, vampires that are traveling with them. In addition to that, uh, in Kislev, there's a number of uh, connections between the nobility and vampires, actually, including a, a previous Tsarina, uh, Katarina, uh, not the current one, uh, who was a vampire herself. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of like history there with them. And then there's some other uh, kind of interesting places of questionable uh, canonicity. Uh, of course, in uh, the Drakenfell's novel uh, regarding like uh, the vampire Genevieve, uh, there's a vampire convent in Bretonia where uh, numerous vampires have kind of uh, decided to get away from society and just get basically like a, a steady stream of blood, sort of a retirement plan, if you will. And in addition to that, there's also a, a vampire tavern in Altdorf where patrons can go to get drinks and then also get drunk by vampires. Uh, that's kind of an interesting little little place which i'm not really sure would exist in the uh modern iterations of uh more of a fancy role play and um drachenfels is a good call out as well because obviously that is uh right on the um gray mountains the border between uh bretonia and uh the Rightland. so if you're playing uh, the Enemy Within campaign, and essentially a lot of the pr printed material that will be coming out from Cubicle 7, which is all set predominantly in the Reichland currently, uh, then Drachenfels is a good um, good place to, to kind of introduce, or at least is a location where vampires will mostly flee to 
perhaps, or at least that's a place that people can explore. Uh, and they also recently released uh, the scan of the Warhammer 1st Edition Castle Drakenfeld's Adventure. How good that is, because, I mean, yeah, it is a long time ago, but you can grab that and have a look at it as well. Yeah, the Drakenfeld's Adventure from back in the day, I, I've skimmed through. It's okay. It's kind of just like a, a dungeon crawl of sorts. One of those like early war of fantasy dungeon crawls that they tried to put out. And um, it has some some pretty interesting stuff to it. Uh, we probably had an episode where we actually go into Nagash and talk Nagash and talk about him further. It might be interesting to talk about constant Drakenfels as sort of like a foil to that character. Um, but he was like an old uh, necromancer, essentially, uh, and could definitely have some interest for for vampires as well. Hey. Um, so the next thing to talk about, because we've talked about where they're from, uh, is what's their society like? And we've got quite a, a, a broad range of night societies, uh, to borrow a good term, uh, for, for these vampires. So we, we're going to be looking at the Von Karsteins, which are based in Sylvania. Uh, we're going to look at the Blood Knights, um, which are based mainly around Bretonia and also areas like Aquitaine, which is in Estalia. Uh, and, you know, their society, because they're very mo much more martial. Uh, the Lamia Sisterhood, which are based out of the Silver Pinnacle, they're much more of a concubines and consorts and spies. The Necrarch, again, quite different, classic necromancers. And then, of course, the Strigoian, as Mike has pointed out, they're tied to the Stragani, so they're much more these... Uh, kingdomless roaming, you know, roaming vampires who also have ties to ghouls. Uh, so, Mike, do you want to talk to us about von Karsteins then? Yeah, sure. I can talk about pretty much all of them. So, um, it's it's interesting. So, with the von Karsteins, essentially, what was going on was that the uh, the Count of Sylvania uh, was dying, and he had one daughter uh, named Isabella, and basically um you know there's a lot of suitors a lot of court drama uh, surrounding what would go on with this uh this elector count seat here in uh in the empire and then a stranger came in kind of swooped in and uh basically um courted her and then eventually gave her the blood kiss and it turns out that uh this vampire uh, was Vlad von Karstein, and he pretty much seized this uh, Elector Count seat uh, within the Empire um, through legal marriage. Um, and you know, th the bizarre thing is that it seems like there was actually like there was actual true love between both Vlad and Isabella. Um, but within ten years, uh, Vlad had Sylvania firmly under his control, um, and this was also the uh, the time of three emperors. So. Uh, things were extremely chaotic at this time within the empire, and there's a lot of warring between uh, different elector counts to see who would become the new the new emperor. The uh, the kind of central authority of the uh, the system was incredibly weak. So the von Karsteins uh, set about uh, with their uh, vampire wars as a a manner to attempt to uh, seize control of the empire and become not just vampire counts but vampire emperors. And the von Karsteins are, uh, in a lot of ways, people like to uh, point out that they're very similar to like Dracula or something like that. But I really feel like they're a strong homage to the Hammer Horror Karnstein trilogy, 
which was a uh, series of uh, films by uh, Hammer Studios back in, I think, the 70s when they came out. Um, so it's a lot of, uh, of, you know, political intrigue between different vampires, um, a lot of backstabbing, that sort of thing. And really, they they don't feel safe amongst each other. And there's a lot of infighting between the different von Karstein factions, particularly once Vlad was defeated uh, in the Empire. Ooh, uh, for yeah, I was gonna say there there are pretty much our our typical vampire kind of like archetype within Warhammer. I think they're yeah. the they're the ones we think about the most. They're the ones that go to war with the Empire on a at least on a on a more frequent basis than the others. I would say. Yeah, they're the ones who who do like they're the ones who have instigated the three vampire wars. They're the ones who get involved in politics in the Empire. They still consider themselves um, an elect account to a certain extent, um, but yeah, they're kind of like your typical vampires that you see, you kind of imagine your dark gothic blood drinkers in a castle, uh, yeah, over people. And Mike, the thing you said about the the when they came to power, uh, when Vlad came to power, uh, the time of three emperors. That's a really if you want to play Warhammer Fantasy roleplay in a historical setting, that would be a really cool period in time and place in the empire to to set your game before you know before sylvania falls fully under the thrall of of vampires when you're in that weird you know in that limbo state with otto von druck dying and and the 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 courting of isabella and the obvious intrigue and politics that's going on as well as the supernatural like you know uh infestation that's about to occur mm-hmm yeah it's really time to uh explore warhammer and it seems like they might be doing that with uh warhammer the old world it seems like that yeah. is probably the yeah. focus cool okay um so blood knights uh are a knightly order of uh Aberash. um they are our you know vampires on horseback as typical knights we think of them also as uh the we we think of the the red duke and other similar characters, these that appear within Bretonia. Uh, we think of the uh, of the vampires that infest uh, Musalon uh, in Bretonia. So they are vampires that are very martial in nature. They're they're less likely to be forming great acts of of necromancy. Uh, they are going to have a code of honor. They tend to imbr- uh, they tend to turn people that I guess have you know, shown some potential and nearly matched them in in, in battle. And as I said, they're mainly based out of Bretonia, but we also do have the Red Duke of Aquitaine, who's a really interesting character. So the Red Duke of Aquitaine, let's let's you know, let's not dance around the subject, is our is our Warhammer stand in for El Cid. So he is the brother to a Grail Knight and the king uh, who's also uh, King Louis the Righteous and he fought, uh, and the Red Duke fought in a crusade against Araby and the Sultan Freen Astalia. He's known as El Saif Ash Shamil, which means the Northern Sword, or he's just known as El Sif. There you go. Uh, he was almost killed due to illness or poison, uh, and that's when Abarash got turned, because actually he was almost killed by a Bretonian baron who came back three, night la- three nights later to, to finish the job. At which point, of course, uh, our Red Duke had already been turned, and instead he murdered his would-be assassin. So 
driven by bloodlust and I'm sure by some element of uh, insanity, uh, the Red Duke goes on a rampage against his brother, against Araby, and is then tragically killed by his own descendant 500 years later, the current Duke of Aquitaine. And well, he sorry, he's he's killed. He's eventually killed by sorry. He's eventually killed by um, King Louis. He's then entombed. He's then released by some witch's coven. Uh, and then yes, 500 years later, when he's from his out of his tomb, he kills the current Duke of Aquitaine, which is where he discovers that uh, he also goes off and defiles a tomb. And it's this whole tragic thing where he discovers that the Duke of Aquitaine that he kills is his descendant. And the tomb that he defiled, this Grail Knight tomb that he defiled, was actually the tomb of his own son. So the Red Duke's got a really tragic storyline. Obviously attached to the Red Duke is the Order of the Blood Dragons. Uh, they keep their um, uh, they, they keep the blood keep on the border of the Empire. Uh, the current Blood Dragons are led by Valach of Harkon. There's the Drakenhof uh, Templars, who are descended from the Von Draks in Sylvania. So that ties us all the way back to Otto Von Drak, who got killed, uh, and whose daughter Isabella is a Von Karstein. And then you also have the Knights of the Red Death, who are killers behind the massacre of the uh, Modrin, which is a town in the Oswald. And they're led by uh, Gorgovich Krakwald. And then we, we also have the Seneschals, who are protectors of the Duke of Merovech of Musalon. So... Again, if you looked to a historical point within Warhammer, you could look at the crusade of the Bretonian Knights against the forces of Araby and the Sultan and the reclaiming of Astalia. You could look at that point in history and the tragic turning of the Duke and how that all links into the history there. Uh, also, a Blood Knight would be potentially a great... Uh, antagonist who is roaming the empire looking for uh, 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 an opponent of you know equal standing uh, and he would obviously perhaps have his own retinue of you know thralls who are wishing to be turned by him perhaps he also has like uh, servants who are maybe members of other bloodlines such as the uh, such as the Strigoi so um, yeah, I really like the Blood Knights are, again, quite fun. I think there's a lot more to them than just, you know, vampires on, on horses being knights. Absolutely. Um, again, it's kind of like what we say every, every, every time we look into the depths of any kind of race or species, look beyond the surface, look kind of deeper in, and you, kind of, you can make some really cool stuff. Um, you could have a Blood Knight who is probably stuck in the idea of the Grail, hunting for the Grail. So. Um, with the connection to Bretonia, turn them into a kind of more Grail-esque character. Could be quite a fun way to kind of introduce them. Yeah, and, and if you wanted to explore the the realms of of Bretonia, Musalon mm. is, is a is an interesting place to perhaps uh, a, an adventuring band of. I don't know who the hell would want to go to Musalon, but they might <laughs> go there and reclaim reclaim something yeah. there was um, actually a uh, there was an adventure in second edition that was all about adventuring through Musion. it was pretty interesting you know they even talked about like the society and just how like depressed things were there you know the uh the main industries were uh uh catching snails um yeah there's an entire book for britonia from second ed so that would be a good point to uh, go back to while we wait for um up-to-date um books from qgl7 Cool. Uh, who wants to talk about um, the Lamian Sisterhood? 
Yeah, I'll give it a go as much as I can remember. So um, the Lamian Sisterhood um, is kind of, they come from Neferata. So after she, she fled um, Lamia itself um, and fled from Nagash, uh, she formed her own kind of uh, cult of vampires. Um, and she first fled uh, to Cathay, um, so to the east, um, and had a string of failed attempts at trying to rule over certain areas um, in her kind of rush to kind of escape from the claws and clutches of Nagash. Um, but she eventually kind of returns and comes to the city of Morcane, which is the capital at the time of the Strigoi, um, where Ushuran is. During this time, she becomes a lady of masks. and She starts to kind of learn how to use her, her abilities in a different way to what we've seen with the, Strigo, uh, with the Blood Knights and with the Von Carson. She becomes a lot more subtle. She starts to work through infiltration and hiding herself from things, from people. And she learns of the experiments that uh, Vasoran is doing um, on, on ghouls. Um, and so with this, she, can, she begins um, through her kind of infiltration and subduction of certain people and dropping in those subtle hints um, from behind, um, behind the throne. Um, she begins a war between the Strigoi and the Orcs. Um, and this is something the Orcs take to quite well because Orcs are Orcs and they like to fight. Um, and in a weird twist of things, vampires, dwarves and humans form an easy alliance um, to defeat the orcs. So uh, the Strigoi um, kind of do work with the, the, the dwarves and humans to, to form an, uh, a force. And through this, the son of the Lord of the Silver Pinnacle is slain in battle. Now at the time, the Silver Pinnacle is um, a dwarven stronghold. And so when this happens, um, the dwarves kind of abandon the Silver Pinnacle uh, Neferata moves in and she claims it uh, for herself, uh, creating the Lamian uh, base, base of power. Um, over time, she uh, Nagash uh, kind of moves back and kind of hears of her, um, and he offers her a crown um, that currently Usharan has, uh, but she refuses it. She doesn't want to work um with Nagash she doesn't like the idea of the betrayal that he laid upon her and her people um when she when she became the first vampire um so she kind of ignores Nagash and refutes him but from her her, her palace of power in a way uh Silver Pinnacle she sends out her uh, to all of the mortal empires again these are vampires who work in the background so they're not people who want to take control they don't want to be out in the front and running the power and running the place they want to be the power behind the throne so they become consorts they become concubines they become advisors they become the little people who whisper in your ears um, and she sends these out across the room. um and that's kind of where she sits now she sits in a in, a, in the sort of subvert um the different elector counts or the, the nobles of Bretonia. Um, through these more subtle means. Um, eventually, though, I don't really remember this in, I'm guessing this is kind of more towards the end times, but she does kind of come back to Nagash and she becomes one of his Mortarks. But this also kind of leads us into where she ends up in Age of Sigmar. And so we'll kind of bring that into Age of Sigmar, probably uh, 
Um, yeah. Um, I think the cool thing I remember from, um, I can't remember which edition of Warhammer was you could take um, in a undead army led by Alarmia, you could take a Empire or Bretonian hero uh, as, a, uh, as yeah. a hero for your army uh, to represent that control. I think you know, obviously, narratively wise, uh, you know, it would be always cool to have like an uh, an army of like Empire or Bretonia that is led by Alarmia. You know, you've got so you've got an entirely mortal human army, and then you've got that one vampire because that'd be really cool. You just you know, cause, as as the battle goes on, you then start summoning undead on someone, and like what? <laughs> Your army's dying, and then you've got even more was, skeletons. I think it was uh, either sixth or seventh edition. Ambassador made it done that. So um, the Lamian had he he created the story where the Lamia had uh, kind of tricked the elector count or the local lord or someone to uh, go to war against someone else who was apparently his friend. And only as things happened that they started to realize, like, uh, oh, and he actually built an empire army and stuck a, a Lamia vampire in the league. It's quite really cool. And. The great thing about the Lamia then is, again, from a story point of view, they, them being, you know, puppet masters essentially, I think really do lend themselves rather well to, uh, to Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. Again, you know, they can be this. You can have very uh, convoluted plots that they are, you know, behind uh, pulling the strings of multiple different parties to obfuscate the fact of that they're they're after something else they may well be setting up different factions to fight against each other so that they can move in and take whatever relic or turn a, a certain person into a vampire so i think in that respect the the lamia offer a lot of story potential within warhammer fantasy roleplay uh, Mike, how do you feel about lamias like what else is there that you think that stands out in particular or other ideas on them um no i think we pretty much covered it they're pretty interesting uh the uh the special rule you were referencing was from sixth edition i was just checking yeah. it out in the army book um <laughs> I, I mean if you want to want me to get into like weird social issues with uh or just like weirdness with warhammer whenever there's a a, a female vampire it seems like they're always trying to make him a lamian vampire um yep. that was true with the miniatures that was true with uh Ulrika the vampire and then uh we'll get into uh, uh genevieve she also was retroactively turned into a lamian for whatever reason yeah i think also the thing is that if you know how they um they talk about because obviously i i didn't play some of the more recent editions of warhammer fantasy uh battles but they they've put the point where bloodlines are less of a thing it, it's more like a school yeah. of thought so hmm. any vampire can become a necrop no matter who they've been turned by uh just as any vampire could become a strigoi by just as we'll find out, consuming the dead all the time. So, in that respect, uh, I think, yeah, to portray vampires that follow the Lamia kind of, I guess, philosophy, training, school of thought, and not mm. always have a female vampire uh, would be great. And I think that's a great yeah. point also in Warhammer Fantasy to then dip into kind of the themes from, say, uh, vam- the Vampire Chronicles to have a character that's a bit more like Lestat or um, or like Louis or or so forth, where you could possibly look at how vampires also occupy that kind of bisexuality space, which I think modern Warhammer is quite happy at exploring these days, whereas classic yeah. Warhammer less so. Yeah, that's cool. 
I didn't realize that the, they made that change where uh, bloodlines are more of a, a school of thought, but I like it. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, I, I think it just it makes it more distinct from from, from Vampire the Masquerade, right. at least. Uh, I think it was <laughs> obvious, like, we can't be that. Um, yeah. Right. Do you want to talk about Necrox then, Mike? Yeah, definitely. So Necrox are actually probably the least developed, uh, I feel, out of all of the uh, the bloodlines, but there's still some pretty interesting things. They're the most magically focused um, and uh, usually are very uh, independent. You know, they usually get like kind of a tower up in the mountains where they're studying their necromancy and trying to advance their magical arts. Um, and in fact, they can sustain themselves using magic over blood, which gives them a, a huge benefit uh, and allows them to have that kind of solitary existence. Um, the uh, I don't want to get too much into like the end time stuff, but uh, there was a pretty interesting um, special character in older editions of Warhammer called Zacharias the Ever Living, and uh, he was pretty much um, uh, Melchior's uh, protege. Uh, but as his sire fell into madness, um, he we don't really know exactly what happens. Maybe he consumed Melchior, maybe he just defeated him, but uh, whatever the case may be, he uh, came into possession of the nine books of Nagash, which is uh, an incredible uh, uh, treatise on necromantic spells and necromantic power. So that's really the their kind of claim to fame right there, uh, in many ways being the um, uh, inheritors of Nagash's knowledge. They, uh, I like the fact that we have some rivalry between uh, them and uh, Ark in the Black, who is obviously a lich and kind of right-hand man to to Nagash. Uh, so you've kind of got that different, again, that rivalry of different types of undead. Um, and they're, they're also Necrox, you know, because they're, they're fueling themselves, with, sustaining themselves with magic, so they don't actually have to drink blood all the time because they're, they're again they're they're ripping life energy directly from people so that again leads to further corruption of their form so i also get the sense that necrots mostly are quite prone to eating a fair bit of warp stone hmm maybe i mean from the um that could be the case it seems as though when they were written it was still the very much uh the bloodline uh kind of direct descendant uh sort of a uh, mechanic so they Every Necrarch that was sired by another would turn out to be ugly. It was just kind of from their their embrace, much like the Nasiratu from Vampire the Masquerade. Um, but I think that's a good idea uh, if you want to explain why, when it's more of a school of thought, and they're all turning out to be in these kind of twisted and hideous undead creatures. Yeah, Warpstone is definitely a good idea to explain it. I also like the tie that they taught um, Manfred von Karstein and how he was a prize pupil to necromancy because of course Manfred von Karstein is quite a significant uh, character uh, within uh, the vampire counts army uh, in Warhammer. Uh, but yeah, they're they're um, yeah they're, they're, they're are typical. I think they also kind of fill that kind of base of like Zemeshe uh, kind of in look as well you know because they make mm -hmm. strange undead creatures by you know grafting body parts together to make you know or, or, or bringing back like large zombie dragons that they've also crafted bits to so they fill that space as well of kind of like Frankenstein monsters that makers kind of I guess right uh, that leaves us with the last one which is I say last one because we we have to discuss the point about these 
questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so the Strugoi. Uh, so as mentioned, as Mike and David have mentioned uh, in passing, the Strugoi are a group of vampires tied to the Stragani, which were a group of people that existed before the Empire. They had a empire, which is in what is now the Badlands, uh, and their empire was brought down due to the politicking of Lamia, who basically created a large war between the kingdom of of uh, Strigoius with the orcs. So when they had to flee from there, and when they had to flee Lamia in the first place, uh, when that first fell, the whole point was that they that uh, Ushran, when he fled Lamia, went north. While he was travelling north, he you know he kind of stayed with groups of of ghouls. So he fed on blood from dead bodies, much like ghouls do. But they they're simply just eating the dead because they're not actually you know undead. They're just twisted, malformed humans. And then he tried to create this kingdom of Strigoius in as kind of a weird pale reflection of of Lamia, and you know that obviously falls apart. So then he fled north again, and so did his children, and they exist really as outcasts. They don't claim any particular kingdom, like in like with Musulon or like with with uh, like with um, Sylvania, or or any of the other places where you might find vampires that have some large citadel. They don't do they don't do that. Instead, there you're likely to find a Strigoi vampire resting in either some large mass grave near where there was a battle or a recent battlefield, or you might find them uh, kind of like the Morlocks. They'll be deep underground with the rest of their ghoul uh, servants, or they'll be residing in a graveyard somewhere, hiding with the dead, eating the dead as they are brought to the graveyard to be buried. Or they'll be travelling with the Stragani and those those people they've brought under their thrall who likely carry them around during the day to keep them safe. Now, also unlike the other vampiric bloodlines or groups, um, they tend to, if they do create large armies, you'll often see them instead leading armies of ghouls rather than zombies and undead uh, skeletons. So mainly ghouls, more than likely also some zombies. But the, the main point about the Strigoi is whereas like the, the Necroc had like driven, you know, a malformed and malshaped and emaciated due to the fact they're they're simply consuming life energy and that's what corrupts them. The Strigoi are corrupted by the fact that they've been eating the dead and so they become large, bestial, they might grow wings, uh, and bat like features. They are hunched over, long claws, and eventually become quite, let's just say, just completely lost to the madness and blood frenzy. They all lose their sense of self. Of course, the greatest of these is Ushran, who originally is from Lamia. He was spy master to, Nefer- uh, to Neferata, so he's known as the Lord of Masks. He discovered that his own main abilities was shape-shifting when he uh became a vampire he found his form malleable and so that mostly relates to why they've become bestial as they eat the dead so it's the whole thing of like cannibalism leads to a corruption of the soul and that leads to a corruption of the outer form uh when lamia was raised he was burnt all his body was scarred and he was driven mad found sanctuary ghoul tribes in the bowels of nagashizar so he was there with the very creatures that um that uh Wazoran would be experimenting upon 
uh, he he you know obviously fled Nagashizar when Nagash was slain by his prisoner Al Kadiza. He was the um, was also a prince that was brought up in Lamia. Uh, you know also Al Kadiza was given a nice a certain blade made of warpstone by the Skaven, and that's why he was able to take out Nagash. Or at least it was a very it was a poison One blade. Many times. Yeah, um, and what eventually happened is that the undead, I believe it's like the undead body of Alcadizo carried the crown of sorcery that Nagash had to allow him to do his magic, carried it north to the Badlands where the necromancer uh, Kadon found it, and that's what he used in order to allow his, you know, his his tribe, the Stragani, create their empire. Ushran, you know, came to this empire, watched it for some time. Then Slukadon took the crown and un- and became Nagash's uh, pawn. Even though Nagash was effectively dead and being reformed in the Black Pyramid, uh, he was a servant to Nagash's will. So in that respect, also the point to note here is that Nagash is kind of our stand-in for a certain dark lord from the Lord of the Rings, but. <laughs> Is is very much harder on the undead and less orcs and a lot more undead. Uh, so the Strigoi, I think, again, fit our monstrous vampires. I think they're a very good thing that you could fight, fight and discover if they're eating, you know, eating people, eating the dead. Um, I think you could possibly face an a recently turned vampire who perhaps is slowly changing and and each time you encounter it each time in your scenario as you encounter it it's mutated a bit further that would be kind of fun mm, yeah that's awesome uh they would also command you know i guess uh dire wolves would be a classic creature for them to command uh that and other necromancers and again what you get a flavor for with the strigoi is what you also have in 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 uh, the mortal realms in age of sigma with the um with the flesh terracots so you could have a court of they you know a strigoi will have a court of vampires maybe in the bow in the bowels of some some underground mortuary and it's there that uh the it'll be there that the vampire thinks and in their own mind believes they are overseeing a grand court that has a grand feast it's a wonderful ball and everyone is dressed in pompous uh, clothing and pageantry whereas in fact what's actually going on is there is a old couple of old tombs covered with mutilated corpses which all these ghouls are feasting on and sat watching it in complete you know rapture is this vampire lord yeah that's very much how i I imagine them, and it's kind of it's kind of where they head towards when you kind of come towards Age of Sigma. Yeah. Come in Age of Sigma. One thing I would, when you think of these things, it is it does something become these are your stereotypical kind of underground vampires who who you have to kind of do a dungeon crawl to kind of get to. Try and think of ways where you can kind of move away from stereotypes. So a vampire brooding over a courtyard. Um, be quite a, a different way of doing doing the same idea, but bringing it above ground. Um, he he he's running a graveyard from within his own crypt. I think I think the main point is I think you get a lot more um, narrative fun by looking at the the society of the Strigani. Yeah, because obviously they're going to be the face to the Strigoi. They're the ones that are going to 
you know, set up shop outside of a town and it's going to be these outsiders. But again, you can subvert that story, uh, the, whereas the Stragani have got nothing to do with it. Maybe you could have vampiric-like killings going on in a town, but there is mm. no vampire. So again, yeah. I think there's also that, that you could have a lot of fun with. Yeah, definitely. There actually is a uh, a Black Library novel about the Stragani, which is called Ancient Blood. Um, and in that one, uh, most like ninety nine percent of the Stragani have no idea that the uh, the Stragoi yeah. exist. Uh, it's completely unknown to them, and it's only uh, when they're being really antagonized um, or attacked by the the local. Um, you know, uh, imperial citizens that uh, they kind of start to learn about the supernatural link that they have. So that is a pretty neat uh, thing to go with. It's a cool point you bring up. It's I think that represents also the difference between most of the vampire vampire groups and vampires in general. I'm going to say compared to Nagash. Nagash is total mad bastard that wants to turn the entire world into a realm of dead. It's just one big, you know, it's one big tomb essentially. Everyone is dead. It's legions of everyone, walking skeletons, ghosts, they're all at his command, and it's perfect order because everyone's dead. Vampires, like the like the Strigoi, in their own kind of twisted logic, want to, I feel, look after kingdoms of people because obviously they need to feed on people. But at the same point, at the same time, they want to be rulers of them. I don't think they want to kill, though, everyone. No, no they, they, they're kind of in their madness that has come from the, the curse of eating flesh is they, they they see themselves as benevolent rulers and as you say uh, holding those big grand parties for their, their supplements and their people they see themselves as these kind of benevolent people um and not really say that about most of the vampires actually from any of the groups they could be yeah. quite benevolent i think the only ones that mostly aren't are the necrock because i think they're closer to to nagash's own goals yeah when you see kind of what happens in age of sigma with them then you can kind of see yeah they are kind of more benevolent they are more in the ability to kind of actually deal with people as you as we saw um, with the Lamians, they did they they did uh for they do form alliances with other races they're not all out about destroying other races they will work with people as long as it's towards their own aim yeah um so you could uh, uh, here's a way that they could work you could be hired by a without knowing that they were a vampire. So Which would be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just a, 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 a rich and powerful. He, he has a job for you. He offers you a job. You only ever meet him at night or you meet through his advisors. And he's asking you to do things. And then as it goes on, you suddenly realize that, no, you're working for a vampire. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to quickly go over the, a few characters that also stand out in all this, uh, and then we'll yep. get to our final po uh, final points. Okay, so first of all, though, Mike, you brought up the point which I completely forgot. I totally forgot this was in uh, with the Black Industries um, RPG books, isn't this? Or is it? Are they? Or is this in? No, this is not Black Library. This is Black Industries. They actually detailed the two more vampire bloodlines. So these are dubious canon, not uh, dubiously canon, not canon. They were they were actually never published, um, ah. but it is pretty interesting. So uh, yeah, uh, I think it was just before the Thousand Thrones supplement came out for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Second Edition. The writer who had this material cut did release some information about the Jade Blooded and the Matmasi. Um, and again, this is not canon, but uh, it's just kind of interesting to take a note of. So the Jade Blooded 
uh, originated from Neferata's uh, chief judge and executioner, who was turned into a vampire uh, like the others. Uh, but when Lamia fell, he traveled east to Cathay, where he created his own bloodline. And uh, they're interesting because they all have cloudy eyes, translucent skin, and bright green blood. And uh, they're known for their kind of complex scheming, but uh, they're a very rare sight in the Empire. And the uh, Matmasi, and this is me remembering things from like 12 years ago, so I might be a little bit wrong. I think there was leaked artwork or like a sketch of them, but no real like uh, written information. And they had, uh, it was a vampire with like a scorpion's tail kind of thing. Um, so there's some some argument as to if they were like desert or maybe like kind of Araby sort of vampires or if they had mutations from like chaos or something like that. Um, so really nothing was known about them, but uh, just another little fun fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think the point to make is obviously that always that Warhammer is always kind of pastiche, kind of phonus of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always going to be a bit tongue in cheek. I have no problem against vampires from Cathay. I think there's a lot of fun you could have with that. I think the difference of their look would be kind of interesting, uh, especially yeah. if one turned up traveling with his with his mortal descendant uh he's come to the empire for whatever business reason uh so that's kind of fun uh, i could imagine they have some interesting kind of and also the way that you know how undead work in um you know in chinese and and eastern mythology is something maybe that colors uh, what they do Maybe I, I I think I think that's actually yeah. why they might have gotten cut. Um, yeah. Because first off, we all know because obviously the three of us really like Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, ethnically linked to vampire clans or bloodlines is is usually a problem. Yeah. Um, and I think they wanted yeah. to kind of avoid that with this material. Yeah, we don't want another Kindred of the East um, scenario. Precisely. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, but yeah, characters then. Um, so we have Luther Harkon, who is Archground Commodore of the Zombie Pirates. So yes, uh, this is the zo- this is the pirate this is the Vampire Cove that is in Lustria. Uh, and so Luther was born outside Lamia as a mortal, was given dark kiss by Avarash. Uh, however, his transformation predated the Order of the Blood Dragon, which makes him part of that bloodline. So I guess that is dubious by modern standards of whether there's bloodlines or not. So again, I would say. He mostly follows uh, teachings and practices which are in line with the blood dragons rather than him being of their bloodline. Well, you say that, but I think it's uh, more interesting, a more interesting angle if he is not of the uh, order of the blood dragon. However, he has his own code that he's developed, uh, which is yeah, you know, a pirate code. Yeah, a martial one. Yeah. Yeah, I think he creates his own martial code. So he takes the idea of the order of the blood dragon, verts it into that kind of hierarchical code um, that he becomes through the, the vampire coast. Is there anything more to say about him other than you have Pirates vampire. of the Caribbean? You have vampire pirates of the Caribbean, basically. Yep, pretty much. There's a lot of story <laughs> ideas that you can go with here. You know, if the characters are uh, sailing on a ship, they could be captured and dragged to Lustria and they have to escape servitude to these uh, zombie pirates. Um, also, just a lot of, you know, kind of pirate adventures and uh, lost gold and treasure uh, in that area. Uh, it's definitely pretty cool. Uh, Mike, do you want to take us um, through Genevieve? Because you've read these books. Uh, I haven't. So uh, what makes Genevieve stand out? 
Sure. Actually, I'd like to uh, just cover Manfred von Karstein oh, really sure. super okay. fast because um, he's another interesting character, um, which uh, uh, characters in more of a fancy role play, your player characters could definitely interact with. So uh, Manfred uh, was one of Vlad von Karstein's uh, get. Um, who became very skilled in magic and uh, was, of course, one of the vampire counts of Sylvania. And he sort of bided his time until all of the other successor vampires were killed off in the vampire wars. And he finally seized the crown of Castle Drakenhof. Um, of course, as all the other vampires did, he decided, now I've got this power of Sylvania. I'm going to try to take over the empire, You know, raised a giant zombie army to attack the empire. It was faced by very disorganized defenses by humans and dwarves. But like the other vampire counts before him, you know, his pride was his downfall. Um, his giant army marched on the swamps of Hell Fen and was obliterated with his slain body sinking into the peat. But where things get a little strange and different is that 400 years later, a necromancer actually dug up Manfred's body with the intention of resurrecting uh, this vampire. Uh, of course, the necromancer was slain by the adventurers Gotrek and Felix. Uh, but the uh, the corpse's lifeblood pulsed onto Manfred, which revived the vampire. And Manfred became uh, uh, much more cunning and smart in his second on life, uh, using manipulation rather than outright warfare to try to advance his plots, but also still consolidating his power in Sylvania. So, yeah, he's kind of the fun, conniving, magical asshole vampire that uh, we've all come to, to know and love. And as David kind of pointed out, like uh, characters could find out that They've been working for Manfred this entire time. He was the dark figure that actually gave him that gold to go on a mission. Um, but another cool idea is that Manfred is actually very obsessed with uh, finding ancient lore and items from Lamia and uh, Nagashazar. So he might fund, even openly, not secretly, an expedition to go down to Kemri and you know maybe do an archaeological dig. Uh, so that could be another fun way to get characters involved down in that setting. Yeah, Manfred's uh, a complete arch bastard because isn't he like partly responsible for why chaos ultimately wins? I am not a student of the end times. Uh, we we can I cover that in the future sometime. But yeah, yeah, he's 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 got yeah issues, and of course he does turn up in Age of Sigma. He's one of the Mortarks, isn't he? Um, yes, he is. Yep. He's, he takes on a more martial role in Age of Sigma. Meaning, let's just say, right, because Gotrex is back in Age of Sigmar as well. There's, <laughs> there's a serious showdown to happen there. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. But anyway, that's a, that's a story for another, for a different realm. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Manfred's, Manfred's a, is a tricky bastard. Um, yeah, definitely a, a good one to bring up. Yeah, so let's talk about Genevieve super quick, because she's a very interesting character. Um, she's basically the only good vampire in the setting. Maybe the Ulrika character from Gotrek and Felix might be a goodish vampire. But she really does uh, uh, stand out. And she's also noticeable because, uh, sorry, <clears throat> she's also notable because the uh, uh, novels about her, like Drakenfels and Genevieve Undead, were written in the 80s before any of the vampire counts fluff was really developed. At that point, it was just like, uh, there's vampires here, but there was no like bloodline details or really any of the history. So, uh, Later on, she was actually, you know, retro retroactively created as a, or brought into the Lamia bloodline and um, kind of like brought into the, the main canon itself. Uh, but Genevieve grew up in Paravon, Bretonia to a minor noble family. And um, she was uh, granted the Dark Kiss at 16 after, and after serving her father in darkness for a few hundred years, she set out to explore the old world. And she held many occupations from student and spy 
bodyguard and adventurer to actress and barmaid. Um, but her great claim to fame was that uh, she was at the climactic battle between Constant Drakenfels, the great enchanter, and Elector Count Oswald von Konigswald. Uh, but unfortunately, she was knocked unconscious for much of the battle. And Genevieve uh, is a very interesting character if you read the novels um, and, and a great person for Warhammer Fantasy roleplay parties to interact with because uh, she's a very humble vampire who lives in Altdorf. Uh, she has enough blood to sate her, and she knows a lot about the world. Uh, she's traveled around. Uh, it could be uh, really useful to just kind of query and question and get facts from. And um, she also just has a lot of like weird, interesting facts and off-color remarks. You know, for example, she she claims that the one time she met the uh, Emperor Magnus the Pious, he tried to get a little too handsy with her. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of good jokes in the in the novels. Um, but she's also notable because she has stats in the, uh, the first edition Warhammer Companion. So there's rules to use her right there. And she also appears in sort of a alternate universe character in Kim Newman's Anno Dracula series. So it's kind of cool to see her pop up outside of Warhammer because, uh, Kim Newman wrote both her novels and of course, Anno Dracula. Interesting. Yeah, again, yeah, having good guy vampires and good guy... I think I like having good guy undead in Warhammer because, it, you know, I think it's it's it just adds an extra layer to how in the Warhammer world, you know, you've got, you've got necromancers, but also you have the colleges of magic, of which one of the schools of training is death magic, is uh, amethyst magic. So... Yeah, you can imagine that Genevieve is potentially also, you know, interacts with that school, perhaps to teach, you know, how to control, you know, death magic in a in a in a more, I guess, less destructive manner. Maybe, maybe she mm. knows some of the spells. That would be really cool, actually. A vampire that knows amethyst magic rather than just death magic. Yeah, it could be neat. Yeah, that's that's cool to have her as a um, as a, a, a patron um, or just a character to meet and converse with, uh, or have her playing off Manfred von Karstein in some weird, um, you know, some strange, complex uh, shadow war. That would be good. Mm, yeah, it could be cool. That'd be a very interesting one to get get your teeth into. Um, yeah, the arch bastard versus the uh, the good. So, yeah, we, we really don't have time to talk about Vampires and Age of Sigma. Just know they exist. We will talk about them another time. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like I to just tantalize people. Of Nagash, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that. that's a good idea. But I do want to just tantalize people with this one connection. When you look at um, Age of Sigmar, there's only a few people that remember what happened with the old world, what the world that was. And those are what? The gods? Yes. Gotrek? And of course, the vampires. So, if you ever want to have that kind of crossover and connection, they're the main people to go to. Oh yeah, definitely. That's yeah. that's a fun. It, it would get especially weird if your Warhammer fantasy character was so heroic, faced I don't know, say faced Manfred, right, dies and is resurrected in the mortal realms as a Stormcast Eternal. <laughs> <laughs> That's where things get troublesome. That's some really, you know, mm. ancient, ancient grudges to be uh, to be set, settled. Um, right. To really properly finish off, then the main things we want to talk about, and we've already spoken a lot about, is how we use vampires in Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. 
And I think the thing that the the main theme is while they could be an antagonist, they could be the vampire in the castle or in the crypt with legions of undead or ghouls or zombies that you dungeon crawl through. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay really doesn't suit that gameplay because I'd like to see you do a dungeon crawl with that system. Uh, But what (laughs) clearly vampires are really good for in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is for some complex plot lines where you have got some shadowy figure pulling the strings that isn't a chaos cultist because yeah you know that's always your first go if if you're not sure who's pulling the strings on on why is this person being murdered why is this happening why are these two groups now fighting against each other you'd often think oh it's chaos cultists trying to bring down the empire if in fact it's actually a vampire or two who are behind these events uh that's also much more interesting um i think there's also a lot to be to look at with various holy relics uh the idea you know of the the red duke you like dist- you know desecrating a tomb of a grail knight so again there might be holy relics to be recovered which have some particular power or a particular bane towards certain vampires so that's something you might want to consider you know you can borrow that idea from like Vampire the Masquerade or Requiem is that vampires also have personal banes uh, that might be tied to their history. Um, so that's what I would tend towards with gameplay for these guys. Uh, other ideas on on what you could do with them or other things to that are worth exploring? I yeah. really like the idea Mike came up with Strigoi and kind of actually having the, the Strigani, um, having them buried within the Strigani and the Strigani don't know and suddenly they end up at a town and then something weird starts happening. You see this whole conflict within the Strigani themselves going, uh, we didn't do this. Uh, what's going on? And kind of having their entire kind of who they are questioned, um, like their way of life. Suddenly we're going, Oh, have we just been convinced to do something because of this mad vampire? Um, and kind of going through that as, as an idea. Um, that's not something I'd ever really thought about, especially with the Strigoi. Um, but you've also the, for me, the thing that screams out is, is, is and having um, that kind of little whisper in the back of trying to control a power behind a throne. And you see, you, you come across um, two lords fighting and you just find out it's just some Lamia having fun and messing with them um, to cause strife within the, within the empire. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think two really covered it. Um, they're basically just these conniving assholes who... Probably you you make a deal with, but you know they're probably going to break it at some point. It's just a matter of when. That's kind of where the drama builds up. I think also they're a good, uh, definitely a good antagonist for places which don't have as much chaos influence. So Astalia, Talia, uh, Araby. Um, you would likely, obviously, have vampires there potentially manipulating that kingdom to lead expeditions south into the dead you know the the lands of the dead so that they can recover ancient kemri relics mm. and that would mean you could potentially be working for a vampire and come face to face with the legions of the tomb kings uh, and you know uh, the sepulchral guard of say um setra or or even uh, what's the name uh, khalid who is the ancient enemy of uh, lami of um neferata so she's a uh, a mummy as well, much like Cetra. 
So I guess that's a good point crossover as well. You could really have some fun as, you know, you're employed by a vampire, you set off into the, the Southlands, go plunder a tomb, and you're up against the obvious ancient enemy of vampires and Nagash, which is the undead kingdoms of Khemri, which are a different type of undead again. Mm-hmm. Maybe even one of those mummies has been brought all the way to the Empire, uh, much like you know classic British Empire back in the day, plundering tombs and bringing back mummies. But the mummy is actually alive and starts bringing back the dead and starts enacting an ancient vendetta against a, against a vampire because it sees, sees the work of Nagash in, in them. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be a really cool way to take it. Just classic Hammer Horror. Around London, then. Um, but yeah, I think we've covered everything there. I think one, one kind of point that I find with vampires in kind of the old world and Age of Sigma is they're not technically evil. They work towards their own means and they will do good stuff every now and then. Um, but they're not also good. So you can kind of fit them in stories in different ways because they're not always trying to kill you and turn you into a vampire. So kind of, as we've seen there, look, look at different ways of how you can fit them in, have them as, as, as your benefactor. And so that could be, it's just, as we always say, look beyond. Yeah. I, I think also you can gain a lot of insight, uh, a lot of um, ideas if you look at the, the ways of the different clans in, um, in Vampire the Masquerade. You can take some archetypes from from that, uh, and you could look at, say, the La Sombra as a as an archetype that you could use, or maybe look at um, the Gangrel, or maybe the Zimshe, and that might give you some ideas of how you want to portray vampires in Warhammer, just so you break away from the the typical rep- ways they're presented. Definitely, you can see quite clear similarities between some of the bloodlines and the clans. So. Cool. Um, oh, actually, and that's actually a good last point. Actually, I just realised you could mostly get a lot of nice ideas that you can port over into um, Warhammer to deal with vampires by just looking at Dark Ages vampire. You know, Vampire the Dark Ages material. You can mostly get a yep. lot of good ideas from those books. Um, yeah, yeah that would be really good. Um, yeah, you could totally re-portray um, when you do. What was it? Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the when you meet. Um, Nazis in Venice, you could possibly just totally take that entire concept wholesale and eat, just represent it set in Talir or Estalia or somewhere of about a crusade that's going to be setting off and the vampires are trying to manipulate that crusade. That would be perfectly good game material. Um, right, with that, uh, I think we're done. Uh, I'll again thank Mike and David for talking about vampires in the Warhammer world, in the world that was the old world. Uh, if people want to get in contact, they can contact us uh, via darkerdaysradio at gmail.com, at darkerdaysradio on Instagram, Twitter, darkerdaysradio on Facebook. We also have a WordPress, and we also have plenty of things on the Storytellers Vault. As we said, we've got the second uh, transmission, the secret frequencies, uh, secret frequency files, Two, which you can pick up right now. Uh, if you're listening to this, there also have been some really good panels and discussions and stream games as part of the Gehenna Gaming Onyx Path Publishing Con, which we will be doing some stuff for. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and want something to watch, you can watch us play games. 
that will be live streamed as part of that. That will be recorded and available most likely on Twitch or YouTube. So um, I think that is it. So thank you again, guys, for helping me out with this. And we'll be back with Dark Hammer in the future. And I think we'll be potentially talking about something. Maybe maybe we'll talk about something Age of Sigmary or maybe a bit 40k-ish. I don't know yet. Well, we'll figure out what yeah. people want to listen to. That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, that's it. So a good night and thanks for listening. Yep. Thanks, everyone.